Well, I'm so glad to be here with all of you today. Um, if you noticed, you know, I, I missed a couple times over the last few months. I got to travel with our son, Kieran, uh, playing baseball, playing travel baseball. We got to go to some cool places, and uh, he's had some amazing opportunities. Now, our actually, it was our last kind of trip out of town, and Eric and Kendall got to join us. Uh, we actually took a trip to Sacramento. We hadn't been yet. You know, we're kind of still new to California. Now, I'm a huge nerd especially history, nerd, science, kind of just really anything. So I love museums. I kind of hoard museum memberships, things like that. And so anytime that we're going to go to a new place, I look up, you know, what museums are there. So whether my kids like it or not, and they do, thankfully. So anyway, we went to the Railroad Museum. I highly recommend it if you visit Sacramento, um, kind of like right there by the river and everything. And so before the trip, uh, my kids and I watched uh, some YouTube videos about the Transcontinental Railroad just kind of in preparation, so we made sure, you know, we knew what we were going to be looking at. And uh, I don't know, I love that kind of stuff. So anyway, the railroad opened for through traffic between Sacramento and Omaha on May 10th, 1869. Uh, pretty cool. So it's, it's pretty interesting because when we lived in Chicago, we got to actually, you know, ride the Union Pacific Railroad over there. So we've kind of seen both ends of it. Um, but as we were watching these YouTube videos about the Transcontinental Railroad and, and talking about, I think, I forget now, there was like one, one thing at the museum that was talking about this, how much this ride was in this like fancy railroad car from Chicago. Um, I believe that one went all the way to LA, but it was like 17 days or something like that. And that seems like a long time. But then we think how, how quickly then, once the um, Transcontinental Railroad you know, was finished, how much more quickly that trip was than what it had been before from, you know, what those of us know as the Oregon Trail, right? So that was kind of our option before that. And now elder millennials, such as myself, maybe some people slightly older, slightly like younger, you know the danger of the Oregon Trail, right? You may have noticed you may have died of dysentery, right, at some point in your life. I definitely remember playing this on, I think, like an Apple, I don't even know, like computer um, with a floppy disk um, in the library at school. But, you know, so then I was like deep diving, okay, well, the Oregon Trail, so we're talking, you know, days, weeks to get across the country um, with the, the railroad. Now, the Oregon Trail, now about 300 to 400,000 people used it in its like heyday. This is like the mid-1840s into the late 1860s, which is when the railroad was finished. So if they traveled 15 to 20 miles per day, it would take them four to five months to travel, um, you know, if I go backwards, that entire distance. So that's pretty crazy, right? That seems like an eternity to me. I don't really even like a long car ride. So even like to drive to Sacramento, I'm like just... I just want it to be over. Uh, so I cannot imagine four to five months, right? So if you think about the parents of these kids on the Oregon Trail are asking, are we there yet for five months, right? That's a long time. And the parents had to keep reminding their kids, why are we doing this to begin with, right? Why were people traveling and then dying um, along this trail? So. Basically, you know, there was, there was land, free land, promised in Oregon, and then all of us who, you know, 
have lived in California a long time or, or just know there was the promise of finding gold in California, whether that was true or not, but that's what people thought. So basically this California, Oregon, wherever it was that led people through the Oregon Trail, this was promised land to them. So you might ask, what in the world does this have to do with Hebrews, Advent, or Jesus? Well, today we're going to talk about an even longer journey than the Oregon Trail, right? We're going to talk about, we're going to go back to the time of the Israelites and Moses. And we know that the Israelites, if you've read the Old Testament, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. So if we think four to five months, that's really long. Add 39 and a half years to that, right? That's a long time. There was a lot of exhaustion and crankiness, right? Imagine being the leader of this group of people, and that's who we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're going to continue our series in the book of Hebrews that Eric started last week, and today we're going to actually focus on the next two chapters, chapters three and four. Uh, and as Eric introduced last week, uh, we're not really sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. There's some ideas. Uh, but we do know that they knew the Torah, or the first five books of the Old Testament. And the writer also assumed that who, the people that were reading this book, they also knew these stories. Uh, so uh, in the first two books of uh, Hebrews, it talks about Jesus being greater than the angels or other messengers. And if you look at, if you have your Bible app or a Bible with you, and you look at the heading of Hebrews chapter 3, the heading states, Jesus is greater than Moses. Now, the writer's not trying to diss Moses, right? Now, I asked Kieran, I don't know, he's, he probably preemptively left the room knowing maybe I would say this, but I asked Kieran if diss is something like, you know, that the kids say anymore, and he confirmed, yes, it is something that kids say, but mom, you should not be saying that. <laughs> so... In, in response to that, here's how I'll explain it to you young people. What they're saying is, now Moses was bussin', but Jesus is even more bussin'. <laughs> Kieran's going to leave the room again. And you can boo me. You can boo me. But anyway, just saying that, the author has a high opinion of Moses, right? Even though the author, he or she, is saying that Jesus is greater than Moses, that doesn't mean that the author doesn't think Moses is also great. Now, in order to fully uh, grasp the claims that we're going to read about in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, we need to remember the story of Moses and the people of Israel. So, using some slides... Go forward again after dying of dysentery. There's, you know, our good Oregon Trail. We're going to go through the story of Moses using some pictures. Um, I don't know, the cartoons were just, just imagine that they're more realistic than this. But, you know, there's not, remember, there's not cameras back in the Bible time. So here we go. Moses is a Hebrew himself, but he is born in a time where the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. And uh, the Pharaoh, at some point, kind of, he's like getting a little nervous about the Israelites. There's too many of them. And in order to kind of protect himself, the Pharaoh, he's like, I'm actually going to order for all of the male children to be killed, right? It's going to protect me because then there's not like as many people that are going to uprise. So that, you know, uh, edict or whatever you would call it kind of goes out. And so Moses' mom actually hides him and... Uh, hides him for a few months, and then eventually, we've, if you've heard the story, puts him in a basket in the river, and it ha just so happens that the Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses. 
So she decides, the Pharaoh's daughter decides, she's going to raise Moses kind of as her own son. But thankfully, uh, you know, she needs Moses to actually be nursed and all that. So he goes back to um, his family with his mom kind of probably until he's maybe a couple years old or so. And then he goes and is going to live his life as an Egyptian uh, kind of with the Pharaoh um, in, with more power. But what happens is that eventually, and, and what, we would assume that Moses is aware that he's a, he is a Hebrew, and he's seeing the treatment of uh, the Israelite slaves. And so there's one story in the Bible where he actually, you know, witnesses their harsh treatment, and he kills one of the slave drivers. And after that, he flees and goes off um, to live in the wilderness. Uh, we don't really know a ton about it other than, you know, he gets married, he's, he's living out there. And the next part that we're going to mention is that Jesus, or Jesus, Jesus is God, we'll get to that, but God comes to talk to uh, Moses in a burning bush. He's essentially saying, I've seen what's happening to the Israelites, I need to get these people out of slavery in Egypt, and he wants Moses to help. Now Moses, like really most of the other people that are asked to do things is like, who, me? Like, I, I don't know how to do this. What am I going to do? God promises that he will be with him. And so, as the story goes, there's the, the plagues that happen. He, you know, he goes, let my people go, if you've seen the Prince of Egypt movie. Um, and eventually, uh, the last plague that is kind of sent is that the firstborn sons will, will die, essentially, in Egypt. And so uh, the people, the Israelite people, are told to put the blood of a lamb over their door. And this, I think we talked about Passover just a couple weeks ago, but this is essentially the first Passover, right, that God passed over the houses that had that. Fast forward again. Now, he lets the people go, right? So... Uh, unfortunately, he lets the people go, the Pharaoh, then he changes his mind. So the people, like the soldiers are chasing after the Israelites. Moses is able to part the Red Sea. The Israelites go through. The water comes back over and kills all of the soldiers that are going after them. So now they're out of slavery in Egypt, but they're wandering still for the next like 39 plus years. Now, I'm going to read a little bit of the Jesus Storybook Bible um, just to kind of get us forward in the story a little bit. And this says, this is talking about the Israelites. Every day of their journey, God kept on showing his people how well he would look after them if they would trust him and obey him. When they were hungry, God made the sky rain with food, bread coming down from heaven. What is it? Which that's what man, that's what manna means. They asked each other and they didn't know. So they called it, what is it? Which of course is a very good name for something when you don't know what it is. When they were thirsty and started quarreling, God made water flow from a rock. Moses called that place quarreling because that seemed like a good name too. And still God's children didn't trust him or do what he said. They thought they could do a better job of looking after themselves and making themselves happy. But God knew there was no such thing as happiness without him. So God led them to a tall mountain. God wanted to talk to his people and show them what he was like. He wanted to help them know him better and tell them about the special land he was going to give them. The whole earth belongs to me, God said, but I have chosen you. You are my special family. I want you to live in a way that shows everyone else what I'm like so they can know me too. And if you know, this is, here's uh, Moses and the Ten Commandments. So God is giving the Israelites, you know, rules to live by. And 
unfortunately, we know that they did not follow those rules, right? There's actually multiple rebellion stories. There's like seven rebellion stories over um, in the Torah, um, even after they were given very clear rules. And Moses himself, even that story of the quarreling is actually kind of one of the stories of Moses, um, his own disobedience. And this will all make sense when we get to Hebrews. So in Deuteronomy 32, 51 to 52, I don't have a slide for this one, but essentially God gives a reason that Moses was not permitted to enter the promised land, which had been promised. And this is what it says. This is because you broke faith with me in the presence of the Israelites in the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the desert of Zin. And because you did not uphold my holiness among the Israelites, Therefore, you will only see the land from a distance. You will not enter the land I'm giving these people of Israel. God was true to his promise. He showed Moses the promised land, but did not let him in. Now, in this time, before this even is happening, we have Joshua, who's another leader, um, who, you know, is kind of like apprenticing with Moses. And it ends up that Joshua is actually going to get to lead the people into the promised land. So this is what's happening so it was that God's people entered their new home, and they didn't have to fight to get in. They only had to walk. Joshua said, God has brought you safely here. Now will you do what he says? Everyone said, we promise. Only God can make your heart happy, Joshua said. So don't pray to pretend gods. No, they said, never. I'm afraid they didn't keep their promise. They didn't do what God said, and many years later, just as God warned them, things would go badly for God's people. They would lose their home, enemies would capture them and take them off as slaves, and God's people would scatter into many different lands. But God's plan was still working. One day, he would give his people another leader and another home, but this home, no one could ever take from them. So we're gonna kinda uh, talk about the word, uh, or the name Joshua. So Joshua comes from the Hebrew name Yeshua, meaning God is deliverance. So in the whole te Old Testament, Joshua is now the leader who is able to, you know, kind of do what Moses set out to do. He led the Hebrews to the promised land, just like we talked about the promised land of California and Oregon, right? Um, now, we also know the word, the, the name Jesus means the Lord saves, Right? So it's not a coincidence that Joshua was the one that led people into the promised land. And then we know that Jesus would come to do that later, but in a much different way. Right? So we're going to transition um, to talking about Hebrews. And why do we go through all this history? Right? Well, the writer of Hebrews is comparing Jesus to Moses and demonstrating that Jesus is greater than Moses. And so this is why it's important to know Moses' backstory, um, because the writer of Hebrews assumes that we know. So when we go to uh, Hebrews chapter 3, so this is starting almost at the very beginning. This is verse 3. This is what it says. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus had been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future." 
But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Now, I, I left in, I think Eric mentioned, sometimes, you know, we take out, there's a little A in like parentheses there. If you read Hebrews, there are a lot of um, like references that are sending you back to the Old Testament, right? A lot of what it's saying, it, it's looking back at what happened before. And so um, a, few, a few verses later, the writer is going to go on to quote from Psalm 95, warning about the hardening of hearts and hearts going astray. So uh, this is a few verses in the future. Um, it's uh, starting in verse 15, still chapter 3. It says, as has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. So we can think back to what was happening um, with the Israelites. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Now, so some of that is, is looking actually back at Psalm 95. Uh, but the rest that the writer of Hebrews and originally the writer of Psalm 95 is pointing to, the rest is actually looking at the promised land. Like the promised land was the rest that, that God had promised. And Psalm 95 is reminding the readers that the Israelites basically complained in the wilderness and were like, why did you even bring us out of slavery in the first place, right? Maybe we should just have stayed there. So that's, that's how, even after all that God did for them, right? They did not trust God's promises despite the manna, despite the water, despite God parting the Red Sea. Like some of them saw that with their own eyes and they still didn't trust. And this is a warning to the original readers of the book of Hebrews, but it's also a warning to us. Uh, so as we kind of go into uh, chapter 4, chapter 4 starts with the word therefore. And the word therefore in the Bible is always... Uh, a, a time where we should wake up and pay attention, like something important is coming. So here is uh, chapter four, and it says, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. So if the warning to us in Hebrews is about entering rest, we should ask a few questions, right? I know some of this is, is kind of confusing, especially if you didn't have the Moses backstory. What exactly did the Israelites do in Moses and Joshua's time that actually excluded them from the rest, right? And what is the rest that they're talking about, right? Well, the Bible tells us for the main reason for them not being able to enter is their unbelief. You know, how many times did God prove himself to be faithful uh, by promising them land? He provided for them all the things that I mentioned before. He gave them rules to live by. He, he promised that when they got to the promised land that they would build the temple there and he would dwell with them. Yet we see the Israelites fall into unbelief, distrust of God, and even thinking that slavery back in Egypt was actually better than what God had promised. So when we look at this, the rest God is promising 
is physical land, but it's ultimately his presence. Because when they're going to go to the promised land, God is going to dwell with them. And that is what they're going to miss out on. The plan all along is that God would dwell or live with his people. Right? Eventually, the temple is built in the time of David and Solomon, and God keeps his side of the deal. But the story of God's people, unfortunately, continues to, they keep forgetting and rebelling and thinking their plan is better. Does that sound familiar to us, right? I know I can relate to that. Uh, so if we look back to chapter 4, uh, verse 7, it says this, and, and this is where we can like wake up and pay attention. God again set a certain day, calling it today. Uh, this he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. And you'll see all these little parentheses because they're, they're sending us back to the Old Testament. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So what exactly was their disobedience, right? Again and again in the Old Testament, we, we pretty much learned that disobedience was unbelief. Uh, in verse 19, it says they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now, to be clear, uh, doubts and questions are not unbelief. But rejecting God's promises in favor of another belief or of no belief at all, that's what they're talking about. Now, on the flip side, the belief that God is talking about is our commitment or uh, our allegiance. Eric has described this in the past as supreme commitment, right? To put our relationship with God above all else. And the rest that keeps showing up in the text of Hebrews, God's offer of rest is here today, just like it said today, like the writer states. So what does his rest look, for, look like for us today? Now, God is consistent through the Old Testament, the New Testament. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So the rest he offered for the Israelites is, was his presence and his promise to dwell with them. God promises us the same thing. You know, we learned last week that Jesus was made fully human. He came here to dwell with us. And God promised the Israelites the temple, and Jesus is better than the temple. He is the temple, right? He is God's full presence. And the same way that God's presence with his people was rest that he promised to Moses and Joshua, God's presence was made fully known through Jesus. So Jesus, in his time on earth, referred to his people as the body of Christ, right? Part of himself, the ones who believed in his promise. And the promise of rest is still available today. When speaking of his presence, you know, do we desire his presence above all else, above all any other desire? Now, why are we talking about all of this during Advent? Well, I think one of the things is because the incarnation of Jesus gives us rest. And incarnation is a big word. Eric uh, talked about it last week. But basically, incarnation, it means to take something that is not physical 
and make it physical. So Jesus is God incarnate, God in flesh, a God that people could touch and eat with and laugh with and hug and cry with. Because God took on flesh and dwelled with us, we can have rest. We can read these promises and understand them as presence with God in the future. But if you only look to the promise of rest as the future, then you're kind of missing something. You know, Jesus dwelling with us was actually heaven breaking through. Uh, You know, many times in the New Testament, we heard the kingdom of heaven is near. So what does that look for us today? You know, our church communities should actually be a foreshadowing of the rest spoken of in Hebrews. If we are the body of Christ, his presence actually dwells here among us. You know, we should be a place of rest. You know, the rest idea that they're talking about, kind of the end of the journey, it's completion. Rest is a quality that, you know, we're not good at, especially in our culture, right? We're all about work. We carry around heavy burdens, But Jesus promised rest when he was here on earth. So in Matthew uh, 11, 28, he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You know, rest, it's not really about taking a nap or going on vacation or getting eight hours of sleep. The rest God promises, you know, means trusting in the work that has already been done. We can't add anything to it. His rest is the greatest. You know, we can't find anything better than it. And because of God's rest, we can actually find a place to belong. So I was, you know, thinking about this concept, and I know that not everyone's biological families are a place of rest. I'm very blessed to have parents that have always provided a a safe place for me. You know, for you, maybe that place is a friend's house, um, you know, or an extended family member. But I imagine the imagery of, you know, the times we, we did live near family when we were first married and when we had really little kids. And so I remember kind of sometimes over the weekend or something just going to my parents' house and being able to take a nap on their couch. And for just that little bit of time, like everything was okay. I could wear whatever I wanted. I could, you know, share, say whatever I wanted. Um, when, when he had little kids, you know, somebody else was kind of like taking care of the baby for a little bit of time. But that is belonging, right? So because of the incarnation, Jesus actually gives us all a place to belong, Hebrews 2 from last week tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And we are all to take care of each other. You know, Hebrews 3, we're going to go to to verse 12. This is what it says. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today which really you can't get around that one, right? Today is today, tomorrow will be today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. But it's talking about we need each other, right? We need each other in order um, that our unbelieving hearts don't turn away from God. The promise to the Israelites was God's presence, And we need to remind ourselves, right, of that presence, of that promise. You know, in the time of the earthly temple, 
uh, and Eric's going to, I'm jealous, he gets to talk all about this, I believe, next week or the week after. But in the temple, um, the high priest was the only person who could actually go into the Holy of Holies and be in the presence. And even then, they had to, like, tie a rope to his foot because God's presence is, like, so great that he might just, like, fall over dead. But at that time, there was actually a big veil that, um, that was, you know, to block kind of the presence of God from all the rest of the people. And I know for me, like the uh, one worship song that says the veil is torn, it's, it's hard to even sing those words without tears because if you understand the Old Testament and what that meant, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil tore in two. We now have no barrier to God's presence right? We, we ha- can have God's presence here. That's what the Israelites were, were searching for, what they needed, and they didn't understand. So Jesus's life and death and resurrection fulfill our promise of rest in the presence of God now and for eternity. You know, we God's people uh, should be that place that I described, right? A place of rest, not the building, but the people. People should feel a sense of peace, like they can be themselves, you know, figuratively take a nap on the couch. You know, hopefully nobody's sleeping right now, but hopefully um, God's people are a representation of his presence here on earth right now. The promise of rest, like a lot of promises, is past, present, and future. This has actually been God's plan all along. So uh, God never forced this plan Right? He, he doesn't want us to just want to be with him because he forces us to. It's just like our relationships here on earth. Right? We don't want our family or our friends to be obligated to have a relationship with us. We want them to want that. The whole, you know, in, in the garden was some of the first broken relationships. Right? Adam and Eve, God was dwelling among them, literally walking next to them. But theirs was the first story of unbelief and broken relationship. You know, they did not trust that God's promise was true. Uh, With the story of the apple, they were like, there might be something better out there, essentially. Um, And since then, the whole story of the Bible, all the way from then to what we're talking about in Hebrews today, is a story of God reconciling his relationship with humanity, right? He has pursued a relationship with his people the whole time. And he's pursuing us today. So what does this mean for us? You know, we've talked about that because of the incarnation, we can have rest. God's presence, we can have belonging amongst the people, you know, where his presence dwells. Uh, in, in Discovery Bible study that we do around here, we like to ask the question, if it's true, you know, what should we do about it? So the question that we can ask today, if God's presence is rest then what should I do about it? So I have a few things that that I thought about as I was reading, and the first one is learn from the Israelites, right? When we are tempted to turn away from God or doubt in his promises, we should remember, like they should have, and, and some did, I'm sure, remember the ways that he has provided for us in the past. Remember that he has always been faithful, uh, faithful despite our times of unbelief. He continues to pursue us. You know, we can come to God like I was able to go to my parents' house and find rest and safety and refuge. Another thing is remind each other, 
right? I can't imagine, um, you know, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and Obviously, along that way, some of the original Israelites didn't make it. They died along the way. And so there were, you know, and there was new children. They didn't see the Red Sea split. They, maybe they weren't there yet when God provided manna. So they needed to hear those stories. They needed to hear how God split the Red Sea to help uh, free them from Egypt. They needed to hear about the provision. You know, when was the last time that you shared with someone in your family or a friend or in your missional community about God's provision to you or about how God has been faithful to you. We need to hear those stories so we can hold up our belief when we feel like we're in a desert, difficult time. You know, we would love for you, if you have those stories, to share them in our next missional equipping gathering. Stories are so important to build up our faith. Right? If you have kids or uh, people that you're discipling, share the stories of God's provision in your life. And the last thing uh, I thought about is that we can actually share the rest, you know, but what does, that, what does that mean? You know, do you know anyone who's really tired? I think we all do. You know, we're able to be part of extending rest to other people. We can share with our friends and in the missional places God has us about the ways that God has provided rest to us. And can our homes be places of rest during this Advent season? You know, can we build relationships to the point where we can actually be that napping couch? You know, a place where someone can, can feel like they're fully known and loved and that they belong. So it's actually fitting today that we will be lighting the peace candle because God's presence brings peace. His presence through Jesus' coming to earth in the flesh brings peace. And as I was kind of looking up the meaning uh, of the peace candle for this week, I saw this quote on a website called thesabbathlife.com, which is actually a place that like runs a retreat center and spiritual direction program. Uh, and it was, it was talking about uh, the peace of Jesus. And I love how even their headline for it, and it says this, the disruptive peace of Jesus. So this is what it said. In Israel's story, we see God's shalom, which is the, the word for peace, as a direct alternative to the order of Pharaoh in the Exodus stories and to the progress of Babylon in the exile stories. As we enter the Jesus stories in the Gospels, we see God's shalom as a direct alternative to the order of Rome. The Pax Romana was an oxymoron of Orwellian proportions. If you've read history, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, Rome was not a very peaceful place, right? So when we hear the word peace in the New Testament, we should see the big vision of God's good and beautiful world that is fiercely subversive to the human political systems. When Jesus uses the word peace, it's not because he's kind or conflict avoidant. It's because he's the rightful king, and he's asserting his authority and reign in the enemy territory. Now, I'll skip ahead. There was more um, in this reading. But this is the end of what they were saying. God is coming with a peace that will finally make everything right. Where there are pain and suffering, God's peace is coming. Where there are desperate cries for freedom from oppression, God's peace is coming. Where there are loneliness and sadness, God's peace is coming. And so during Advent, we boldly recognize all of the places that our world is not peaceful. We light a flame to remember that along with God's hope, God's faith, and God's joy, 
God's peace is on the way to disrupt all of the unshalom that we see around us. So ultimately, because of the incarnation, we have peace. So I'm going to invite the band up. Um, and in a minute, we're actually going to light the candle. But pray with me as we close today. God, thank you so much for just the story of your chasing of us all the way from the garden to us today. You desire to give us rest ultimately in your presence. You want to dwell with us. You want a relationship with us. God, we're, we're sorry for the times where we live in unbelief, where we forget the ways that you have provided for us and been with us and your faithfulness to us. Thank you so much that you sent Jesus in God in the flesh uh, to dwell among us, to, to be the fullest representation of you here on earth. Uh, God, please help us to extend that rest to other people, to extend the peace of Advent all around us. Thank you so much for today, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.